So uh, make sure you've got your Bibles open to John chapter 6 as we continue our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. We're going to be starting in just a few minutes in verse 41, picking up where we left off last week. In the year 1498, something amazing happened. In 1498, Leonardo da Vinci uh, completed his work on his masterpiece, one of the best-known and loved paintings of all times, the good old Last Supper. And so he worked on this painting for about three years. And during that time, we know very little about how Leonardo da Vinci painted this thing and how he went about finding models for the 12 disciples and for Jesus. And so there's a lot of speculation and legend that surrounds the painting of the Last Supper. And one of the legends goes like this. Early in the process, as Leonardo da Vinci began his painting, he was looking for the perfect faces to represent the apostles and Jesus. He was sitting in mass one day, looked up at the choir, and in the choir he saw the face of a young man. And he felt like his face just resonated with innocence and kindness and love. And so he chose that young man to sit on that chair, and he painted his portrait representing Jesus Christ in the center of the painting. Well, several years pass, and he's nearing completion of his Last Supper painting, and there was one face left to paint, and it was the face of Judas Iscariot. And everywhere he looked in town, he couldn't find the perfect face to communicate what he believed Judas Iscariot would have looked like until he went to a local prison. Leonardo da Vinci visited a, a local prison, and there he found the face of a man. And this face just resonated with grief and regret and bitterness and anger and sin. And he said that's the perfect face. He asked him to come and sit for him as he painted his portrait. And as he was finishing his final strokes of painting Judas Iscariot's face, the young man sitting in the chair began to have tears come down his cheeks. And Leonardo da Vinci asked him, what's wrong? Why are you crying? And the man said, you mean you don't remember me? Da Vinci said, no, I don't remember you. Why? This isn't the first time you've painted my portrait. I sat here for you three years ago when you painted the face of Jesus. You see, life had taken quite a toll on that young man in those three years. Sin and rebellion had literally changed the way that he looked. It's a sad story. Most likely it wasn't true. But it does get us thinking. Oftentimes we realize, don't we, that we're surrounded by people who once served Jesus and once loved Jesus and once resonated with that enthusiasm for Jesus. But time passes. And before we know it, they've turned their backs on him. And it's like it's a completely different person. This morning, as we take a closer look at the final half of John 6, we'll encounter one of the saddest moments in John's gospel. Thousands of people in Galilee have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. They have heard Jesus' powerful teaching, and they have seen his amazing miracles, including feeding around 10,000 people with just five biscuits and two sardines. They've seen these miracles. They've experienced his teaching. But despite all that, as the chapter closes, many of them will walk away, turning their backs on Jesus, never to return again. Well, remember what happened between verses 22 and 40 here in John chapter 6. Those are the verses we looked at last Sunday. 
a part of the crowd that Jesus had fed on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, crossed over by boat to the west side. They came to Capernaum looking for Jesus. And when they find him, a conversation began between Jesus and the crowd. And Jesus quickly exposed the motives of their hearts. They weren't following Jesus because of his compassionate miracles, because he had healed the sick and opened the eyes of the blind and cleansed the lepers. They weren't following Jesus because of his life-changing teaching. And they certainly weren't following Jesus because they loved God. They were following Jesus for one reason only. They were hungry and they wanted another free meal. And Jesus calls them on the carpet. He tells them that that's their motive. He reveals the motives of their heart. He tells them in verse 27, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. Jesus tells him in verse 29, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And in verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. Well, that pretty much takes us to where we left off last week. So please follow along in your Bibles as we begin in verse 41 of John chapter 6. If you're there, say amen. Amen. Here we are, John chapter 6, beginning in verse 41. At this, the Jews began to grumble about Jesus because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert. Yet they died. But here's the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give you for the life of the world. May God bless us as we study his word today. Well, if you look back in verse 40, where we finished last week, Jesus, in verse 40, shares the greatest good news in the history of the world. Jesus basically says, this is what God the Father desires and wants more than anything else. He wants you to believe in me. He wants you to put your trust in me. And if you do, he will give you the greatest gift ever. He'll give you the gift of heaven. Eternal life in paradise. Does that sound good to anyone but me? The gift of eternal life in paradise. Wow! Better than Disneyland, better than your favorite buffet, better than Hawaii, better than any of the things you've ever done in this life, times 10. That's heaven. That's paradise. And he offers this wonderful gift. You believe in me. You trust in me. God will give you eternal life in heaven. And how does the crowd respond to this amazing news? Look at verse 41. They respond to this amazing news by starting to grumble. What a wonderful response. They start to grumble. They start to grumble. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down 
from heaven. Sadly, over the next 30 verses, there's a whole lot of grumbling and griping and arguing going on. Verse 43, Jesus says, stop grumbling among yourselves. If you fast forward to verse 52, it says, then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. Fast forward to verse 61, it says his disciples were grumbling about this. Yes, there's a whole lot of grumbling going on in this second half of John chapter 6. Now, can you remember another time in Scripture when the people of Israel did a whole lot of grumbling? They're in the desert, in the wilderness. Remember, on the way to the promised land, 40 days, or excuse me, 40 years, they were going through the wilderness to the promised land, and it was grumble, 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 wasn't it? You go back and you look at Exodus 16 and Numbers chapter 11 as the people of Israel were on their way to the promised land. They hadn't been out of Egypt very long at all. They start to grumble because they're hungry. And so God responds to their grumbling by blessing them with manna, bread from heaven. It's there every single morning. They don't have to work very hard to get it. It's right outside their tent. They just pick it up, put it in a bowl, and they have something to eat that day. But after a while, they get tired of manna, right? So what do they start grumbling about? We don't have any meat. And so God gives them quail every evening. He says, you're going to have so much quail, it's going to be coming out of your nostrils. <laughs> These people were grumbling, grumbling, grumbling. So I think if you boil down that 40-year wilderness wandering into a brief statement, you could say this. The Israelites' 40-year journey to the promised land largely boils down to this. God provided for the people, and the people grumbled. That's a pretty accurate summary, isn't it? You look there in Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and that's largely what it boils down to. God provides time and time again, and the people grumble about the way that God provides for them. And it's not much different here in John 6. Yesterday, Jesus provided the crowd with a huge feast of fish and biscuits there on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. But today, they grumble. As Jesus speaks to the grumbling crowd, six different times he makes it clear that he is the bread sent down from heaven. In the Old Testament, God sent physical bread. He, he sent manna there in the wilderness. But Jesus says, in New Testament times, God sends you something that is infinitely more precious than manna from heaven. Infinitely more precious than physical bread is spiritual bread. He says, I am the bread of life sent to you from heaven. And yet the people start to grumble. God sent Jesus Christ, the greatest bread in the universe, and the people grumble. It's wonderful news, but they grumble anyway. They take offense at Jesus' claim that he is the bread that came down from heaven. In verse 42, the grumbling crowd asks, Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? Isn't he the one whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Well, after telling the people to stop grumbling in verse 43, look again at what Jesus shares in verse 44. It's really a profound insight. In verse 44, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, for those of us who are strong believers in free will, not to get too technical this morning, but some of you know the whole age-old argument between the two different camps of Christians. 
You've got Calvinists on one side who believe that God picks and chooses who's going to be saved, and he picks and chooses who's not going to be saved. And then on the other camp, you have the Arminians who believe very strongly in free will, in free choice. The cross of Jesus Christ is offered to every man, every woman, every child on the planet, and we have to choose whether or not to accept him. And so you've got this age-old argument between the Calvinists and the Arminians. If you lean this direction, which our church tends to lean this direction, towards Arminianism, then there are some verses in this passage that you're going to wrestle with because they seem to clearly indicate that God picks and chooses who's going to be saved. Look at verse 37. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. In other words, you will not come to Jesus unless Father, the Father in heaven gives you to Jesus. Look at verse 44. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In other words, if God does not draw you to Jesus, you will not come to Jesus. Verse 65, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. So, translated, if God does not enable you to come to Jesus, you will not come to Jesus. So, what are we to make of this? Interestingly, the Greek word that is translated here in verse 44 as draws almost always implies some kind of resistance. The same Greek word is used over in John 21:11 as Peter drags with great effort, draws the net onto the shore. It's so heavy, it takes effort to drag that net ashore. So the bottom line is, when it comes to salvation... God takes the initiative. Before you ever thought of God, God thought of you. Amen? Before you ever loved God, He loved you. Before you ever chose to accept Jesus Christ's gift of salvation, He provided His gift of salvation. There's no denying this, right? Regardless of what camp you fall in. There's really no denying this. So even the strongest believer in free will shouldn't be stumped by what Jesus says here in John 6. It's really plain to see. If God the Father didn't take the initiative to draw us to Christ, none of us would ever get saved, right? I'll take it a step further with this specific Greek word for draw in mind. If God the Father didn't take the initiative to draw us to Christ, despite our resistance, none of us would ever get saved. Because of our stubborn, sinful nature, all of us at one time or another have resisted the draw of God. How many of you can think back to a time when you resisted God over and over and over again, and then finally you relented and said, God, I, I surrender. God, I give in. It happens all the time. Aren't you thankful that God didn't throw in the towel? He kept drawing you to Christ. We should get on our knees today and thank God that he was persistent in his love for us even when we resisted him. If you are saved today, it's because God gave you the good sense to stop resisting his drawing. You surrendered your stubborn unbelief. You humbled yourself before God. You repented of your sin. You trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. But it all began with the initiative of God. So what are we going to do with the people in the crowd here in John 6? What was going on with them? Well, they were stubbornly digging in their heels, resisting the draw of God, and continuing in their unbelief. In verse 45, Jesus quotes 
an Old Testament verse that would have been familiar to the Jews in the Capernaum crowd. He says, quoting from Isaiah 54, 13, all your sons will be taught by the Lord and great will be your children's peace. That's the full verse there in Isaiah 54. Jesus is once again claiming to be God, Yahweh, the great I am. The self-existent one, God in human flesh, is teaching the crowd, but sadly his teaching is largely falling on hard hearts and deaf ears. The crowd here in John 6 is grumbling because they refuse to believe that Jesus is the bread that came down from heaven. Just like in chapter 5, Jesus has this golden opportunity to start backpedaling and saying, Whoa, you guys misunderstood me. I, I didn't really mean that I'm the bread from heaven. And that's not exactly what I meant. I, I misspoke. He, he had the opportunity to backpedal here when he's getting all this resistance from the crowd. But notice he doesn't backpedal. He doesn't say anything about, Oops, I misspoke or Oops, I exaggerated. Jesus instead does quite the opposite. He doubles down and reiterates in verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. What do you think the chances are that the crowd won't like Jesus' explanation very much? They don't respond too well to that. Let's pick up in verse 52 and see how the crowd responds as Jesus begins to double down. Starting in verse 52. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live Forever, He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Wow. When Jesus declared that he is the bread of life, it left his listeners scratching their heads in confusion, and it started a big old argument. We read that in that first verse, verse 52. Starts a big old argument. So what does Jesus do in response? He presses his teaching to a more extreme level. He doesn't backpedal. He presses in further. Verse 53, he says, eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. It's one thing to say, I am the bread of life, but to take it a step further and say, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Wow, he's going for it, isn't he? Verse 54, if they missed verse 53, he says in verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. If they miss verse 54, he says in verse 55, my flesh is real food, my blood is real drink. And if they missed all those verses, he says in verse 56, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Many Christians consider this to be one of the most confusing and hard to stomach teachings of Jesus in the entire New Testament. This is a tough teaching. But if you open your ears and your heart, you can and you will understand what he's saying. So, let me ask you, let's clear the air on this. 
How many of you really believe in these verses, particularly in verses 53 through 56, how many of you believe that Jesus is teaching cannibalism? No takers on that one? Okay, well, we won't have to spend a lot of time on that then. I'm a Christian, so break me off a piece of that Jesus. Right? He's not advocating cannibalism. You got the, the jingle for Kit Kat, and it's just kind of a Christianized jingle. What we sing at church, give me a break, give me a break, break me off a piece of that Jesus Christ. You know, we're not singing that on Sundays, are we? Okay? So we agree, don't we, that he's not advocating cannibalism. So... Jesus, if he's not advocating cannibalism, we know he's not being literal. Eating his bread and drinking his blood is a metaphor. It's a metaphor. So which begs the question, why does Jesus intentionally press his metaphor to the extreme? It's one thing to say, metaphorically, I am the bread of life. But why does he press in so hard with this metaphor? Uh, I'm not just the bread of life. This flesh of mine is real food. And this blood running through my veins is real food. Why does he press the metaphor so far? Well, Chuck Swindoll suggests two reasons why. Number one, by taking this metaphor to its extreme, anyone who had been paying attention to any of Jesus' teachings could figure out in about half a second that Jesus was not advocating cannibalism. Anyone who had been paying a bit of attention would know immediately as he presses in so far, he can't be literal here. It's kind of like this. When you're really, really hungry, how many of you say, I am so hungry, I could eat a mouse? Now, you don't say that, do you? Why? Because you could conceivably eat a mouse. It would taste nasty. I wouldn't recommend it. But it's only this big. You could fit it in your stomach, right? What do we say? I am so hungry, I could eat a I can eat a horse. That is so outlandish. Anyone who has half a brain can figure out you're not literally talking about eating a horse. It's a similar thing with Jesus pressing his metaphor here. Anyone that had been paying a bit of attention could know this has to be a metaphor. He's not being literal. The second reason Chuck Swindoll says that Jesus presses this metaphor further is because this type of teaching separated the true believers from the fair weather followers is separated the wheat from the chaff, right? Remember when you were threshing the grain in those days? The chaff would fly out and the wind, fly off in the wind. You didn't need the chaff. It was useless. You wanted that kernel of wheat. That's what you used to make bread. And so they would separate the wheat and the chaff. And, and so Jesus uses those elsewhere as metaphors for followers of him and those who reject him. And so Jesus here is separating the wheat from the chaff, much the same as he does when he gave parables. None of those parables are recorded for us here in the Gospel of John, but they're recorded by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Why did Jesus speak parables? Two reasons. One, to reveal the truths of the kingdom of heaven to those who are true followers of Jesus, and at the same time to conceal the same truth from those who are not serious about following Jesus. Parables reveal and conceal in the same teaching, right? Similar thing with this metaphor here. It separated the true wheat from the chaff. So if you're here today and you are chaff, you'll respond to Jesus' teaching just like the crowd in Capernaum did. You're going to respond by saying, this teaching is insane. Eat your flesh and drink your blood? No, thank you. Count me out. I'm out of here. But if you're here today and you are wheat, you'll respond much differently. You might have no clue what Jesus means when he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. You may not understand it, 
but you're going to try to understand it. You're going to press in further because you want to know what it means. You need to know what he means. You're hungry for the truth. Amen. Amen. So if this describes you, that you're hungry for the truth, pay attention. We know what Jesus doesn't mean when he tells us to eat his flesh and drink his blood. He doesn't mean for us to carve him up and serve him for dinner. But what does Jesus mean? Well, to understand what Jesus means, let me give you a little bit of a historical background. In those days, throughout the Greek and Roman worlds, animal sacrifice was very, very common. And so it went like this. Someone in any Greek or Roman town who wanted to offer an animal sacrifice would go to the temple of their God and they would bring in that animal and give it to the priest. And so that animal would be placed on the altar and burned up. But interestingly, only part of the animal was burned up on the altar when it was sacrificed to a God. Just a small portion of that animal was burned up. So what did you do with the rest of that animal? Part of that was given to the priest That was his payment for his services there, serving the God at that temple. And the rest of that meat was given back to the worshiper. And he would call together his family and friends. And there somewhere in the temple complex, they would have a feast on the meat that was sacrificed to that God. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. Pagan worshipers believed that when an animal was offered in sacrifice to a God, the God would actually enter that animal. So when the worshiper ate the meat that had been sacrificed to his God, he was actually eating his God. And as he ingested that meat, as he ate that meat, the God would come inside him because the God had filled that meat. Is Jesus' metaphor beginning to make more sense? This was the historical backdrop as Jesus gave this teaching. And so this whole idea of ingesting your God as you eat this food, that's the reason why in Acts, when the church is reaching out to non-Jewish Christians and giving them some guidelines there in Acts 15, they say, first and foremost, make sure you do not eat the meat of idols. Do not eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols. Why would they say that? If idols aren't real, if idols are fake, they would say that because the people believed that when you ate meat sacrificed to idols, you were eating that God. You were eating that idol. You were inviting him into your life. And so the early church said, make sure you don't eat meat sacrificed to idols because we don't want anyone thinking that they're inviting a false God into their lives. Right? So you with me so far? So at this point, there are three things that we know for sure from Jesus' teaching in this passage. Number one, Jesus is not advocating cannibalism. We've already established that. Number two, God wants Jesus to be inside us. That's pretty clear, isn't it? And number three, if we are God's true followers, we will also want Jesus inside us, which leaves us with one big remaining question. How do we eat Jesus? What's he talking about? How do we eat Jesus? How do we get Jesus from the outside into the inside? And Jesus himself answers that question in the final 12 verses of the chapter. Let's pick up in verse 60 as Jesus answers this question. Beginning in verse 60, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? 
What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave also, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. In verse 60, not just a few, but many of Jesus' followers said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? The Greek word translated as hard here in verse 60 is an interesting word. It doesn't mean hard to understand. It means hard to accept. So with that word in mind, when it comes down to it, the people in the crowd didn't have an intellectual barrier to believing what Jesus was teaching. They didn't have an intellectual barrier. They had a motivation barrier. They didn't want to scrap their tired old religion. They didn't want to repent of their sin. And most importantly, they didn't want Jesus inside them. Jesus asked the stubborn non-believers in Verses 61 and 62, does this offend you? Uh, What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? In other words, he turns to the crowd and says, if you're coming up with excuses now for refusing to believe in me, what kind of excuses are you going to come up with when some of you with your own eyes see me ascend into the clouds going back to heaven? What excuses are you going to come up with then? Similarly, we could ask any of you today who have been stubbornly refusing to accept Jesus Christ, you're denying him today, you're pushing him away today, what's going to be your excuse tomorrow? What's going to be your excuse next week, next month? Jesus asks him, what's going to be your excuse then when you see me ascend into heaven? Verses 63 and 64, Jesus says, and don't miss these verses, the Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. And there it is. Jesus' answer to our pressing question. How do we eat Jesus? And his answer is, we eat Jesus by eating his word. The word of God is the flesh of Christ that we must eat. And the blood of Christ that we must drink. Say that with me. The word of God is the flesh of Christ that we must eat. And the blood of Christ that we must drink. Now say it like you mean it. The word of God is the flesh of Christ that we must eat. And the blood of Christ that we must drink. Jesus makes it clear in this chapter that if you don't have Jesus inside you, you cannot and you will not make it to heaven. So how do you get Jesus inside you? By eating and drinking His Word. By eating and drinking His Word. Don't just listen to it. Believe it. And hide it in your heart. When you do, you'll be hiding Jesus Himself in your heart. Amen? Amen. 
Uh, Don't just read the Bible every day to fill your head with knowledge. Read the Bible every day to fill your thoughts with, with Jesus, right? It's so simple. How did we miss that? If you want more of Jesus in your thoughts, it's not rocket science. Eat more of his word. Drink more of his word. Read his word more. Listen to more sermons and more worship music during the week that are filled with the word of God. Attend more Bible studies that dig into his word. Come to church every Sunday and soak it in. Bottom line, eating and drinking God's word must be a top priority in our lives if we're truly hungry and thirsty for more of Jesus. You can tell a lot about how hungry someone really is for Jesus by how much time they spend in the Word. You show me someone that opens this once a week on a Sunday and puts it on a shelf to gather dust the rest of the week, I'll show you someone who is not hungry for Jesus. If you're hungry for Jesus, you're going to be in this Word. You're going to want to listen to it. You're going to want to read it. You're going to want to meditate on it. You're going to want to memorize it. Why? Because the more and more and more that you get to know God's word, the more you get to know Jesus. The more you hide the word of God in your heart, the more you hide Jesus in your heart. The more you fill your thoughts with the word of God, the more you fill your thoughts with Jesus. I think we can pull three responses from these final 12 verses. Really, as Jesus gives this hard teaching, it is a hard teaching. Drink my blood, eat my flesh. There are three different responses that we find in the crowd. And every one of us in this room fall in one of these three responses. The first response we see in verse 66, many deserted him. Many deserted him. In John 66, I think we find one of the saddest verses in all the book of John. Look at it again. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. William Barclay writes these words. He says, here is a passage charged with tragedy, for in it is the beginning of the end. There was a time when people came to Jesus in large numbers, but the tone of things had changed. From now on, there was a growing hatred, which is going to culminate in the cross. Already, John launches us on the last act of the tragedy. It is circumstances like these which reveal people's hearts and show them. In their true colors. This verse, John 6, 66, marks the beginning of the end. Friends, I think you all realize we're living in the end times. And this world is not going to get any bigger, any better until Jesus comes back. Sadly, many people who attended church faithfully last month will stop attending this month. Sadly, many people who came Looking for Jesus last week, we'll stop looking for him this week. Many who were excited about Jesus yesterday are no longer excited about Jesus today. Is it tragic? Yes, absolutely. But it's a reality. Fair weather followers of Jesus deserted him back then, and fair weather followers of Jesus keep deserting him today. That's the first response. Many in the crowd deserted him. There's a second response that we find in verses 67 through 69. This was the the response of most of Jesus' apostles. Response number two, a few expressed their continuing devotion to Jesus. Say that with me. 
a few expressed their continuing devotion to Jesus. After many of Jesus' followers shake their heads, turn around and walk away, never to return again, Jesus turns to his 12 apostles and he asks them that pertinent question in verse 67. He asks them, you do not want to leave too, do you? can almost hear the anguish in Jesus' voice, can't you, as he asks that question? He sees all these people walking away, knowing that they'll never return. And he turns to the twelve that he had chosen. You don't want to leave too, do you? Are you going to leave me just like those people left me? And thankfully, Simon Peter speaks up. Yeah, good old Peter. He struggled with foot and mouth syndrome a lot of the time. But what he says here is the perfect response at the perfect time. Verses 68 and 69, he steps forward and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Wow. What an amazing confession of faith. Peter doesn't claim to understand what Jesus meant when he spoke of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. But Peter is determined to follow Christ anyway. Peter isn't a fair-weather follower. He's a committed follower for the long haul. When Jesus taught things that blew his mind, Peter followed Jesus anyway. When Jesus did things that didn't make sense to him, Peter followed Jesus anyway. When most people turned their backs on Jesus, Peter followed Jesus anyway. How about you? You see, Peter had decided to follow Jesus, and for him there was no turning back. No turning back. I love the words of the old hymn. Words are so simple, yet so powerful. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back. No turning back. That was Peter's response. And most of the apostles' response as well. But there is a third and final response we see in this chapter. Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And there was at least one man who persisted in being a devil in disguise. We see that in verses 70 and 71. Judas Iscariot persisted in being a devil in disguise. In verses 68 and 69, Simon Peter serves as the spokesman for all 12 apostles. He makes it clear, Jesus, we're with you all the way. No matter what, we don't understand what the heck you were just teaching, but we're with you all the way. We believe you are the Holy One of God. Little did Peter know that there was a traitor in their midst. Among the twelve was an apostle who heard all the same sermons. Among the twelve was a man who had seen all of Jesus' miracles just like the other eleven had. There in the ranks of the twelve was an apostle who just like the other eleven had been appointed by Jesus just a few months earlier to go with his buddy as they went two by two into the surrounding towns. And he was given that same mission the other eleven were given to preach about the kingdom of heaven, to open the eyes of the blind, 
to cleanse the lepers, to drive out the demons. He had been able to do all those same miracles the other 11 did. But while the other 11 are filling themselves up more and more and more with Jesus, meanwhile, he's filling himself up more and more and more with Satan. That was Judas Iscariot, the devil in disguise. A man who was full of the devil. And he had everyone fooled. He had everyone fooled. All the while, Judas Iscariot was an unbeliever. Worse than that, as the other apostles were filling themselves with Jesus, he was filling himself with the devil. Everyone was fooled in the ranks. Everyone, that is, except for Jesus. Jesus knew. So let me ask you this morning. In which of these three groups are you? Are you in the first group? Are you a fair-weather follower of Jesus who will grumble and desert Him? As soon as Jesus asks you to do something that is too hard or something you don't want to do, are you going to turn and desert Jesus when His teaching, like His teaching today, gets too hard? Are you going to turn like they did? Are you in the third group? Are you like Judas? Are you like one that is really good at pretending To be the best Christian on the block? You know the right times to say amen and to shout hallelujah? You know where all the scriptures are found? You know the books of the Bible? You go to church? You even put something in the offering bag? You've got everyone fooled except for Jesus. Are you with Judas? Do you care more about yourself than you care about him? Or are you in that second group? Are you in that second group? With Peter who stood and said, who else will we go to? You have the words of life. I don't always understand what you're saying, Jesus. Some of the stuff you say just kind of blows my mind. Some of the stuff you ask me to do is really hard. But nothing is going to stop me from following you. You are my Savior and Lord. And I will follow you till my dying day. I hope and pray that you're in that second group today. Lord Jesus, please forgive us for the times that we have failed you. The times, Lord, that in our confusion we've said, I don't have time for this, I don't want to deal with this, and we've walked away. Please forgive us. Forgive us for the times, Lord, that we've just gone through the motions and we pretend to be a committed Christian who has it all together. But we know we don't. We might be fooling others, but we're not fooling you. Help us, Lord, to be the real deal. To truly be hungry for you. To truly be hungry for your word. And we may not understand it, but we're sure hungry to figure out what you are saying and to learn your word. I pray if there's anyone here who has never made a decision to accept you as Savior and Lord, that they would put you in charge of their life today, saying, Lord Jesus, please forgive me. Please wash me clean. Forgive me of my sin. And I promise to follow you for the rest of my life. To place you in the driver's seat of my life. I want you to be in charge. And I will trust you. And I will love you. And I will obey you from this point forward. In Jesus' name. It is Decision Sunday, and 
It's a great opportunity to make a decision for Jesus. If you have one to make, Rosie's going to be up here. Terry, you can come back on stage if you'd like. We have one final song to finish the service. And it's a song we just shared the words together a few moments ago. I have decided to follow Jesus. Though none go with me, still I will follow the world behind me, the cross before me. Most of us in this room have made decisions for Jesus Christ. Let's stand together and let's recommit ourselves to follow him no matter what. Amen? And seriously, in our heart of hearts, say, Lord Jesus, I truly mean it when I say it. Even if no one else goes, I will still go with you wherever you lead me to go. If you need prayer, if you have a decision to make for Christ, you come up. And we'd love to pray with you and talk with you about how you can make a decision for Jesus. We've got the baptistry set up today. If you need to be baptized, we're ready. There's nothing holding us back except your stubborn refusal to accept the drawing of God. So you let go, and Jesus will draw you all the way to himself. But you've got to stop digging in your heels. You come if you have a decision to make for Jesus today. turning back no turning